This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobber, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration. The purpose of my company is to help business software companies rethink what can be to become remarkable again. The goal that I have in this podcast is to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. So my strong belief is that we can think big, and therefore we should. And doing so will help to create a better world for all of us. This podcast is all about that. The guest on my podcast today is Brian O'Neill, founder of Designing for Analytics. I started to see really bad survey results over you know 10 plus years. And so what I'm specifically talking about here is the success rate for delivering data projects. The theme here though is that you know the success rate on launching successful data initiatives, you know, covered around 10 to 25%. So that means, you know, this failure rates up in the 75% plus. My general feeling was there was a, there's a lack of what I think is a focus on the human aspect of analytics and data science projects and products right now. We're trying to use the data science and analytics hammer and we're looking for stuff to hit, but no one's really aware of where do we need holes? Who needs a hole and where do they need the hole? Instead, it's just hit nails wherever we can hit that and hope that someone maybe needs a hole here. This is Brian. He's a designer, advisor, and the founder of Designing for Analytics, an independent consultancy that helps organizations design innovative products that are powered by data science and analytics. For well over 20 years, he has worked with companies like Dell EMC, Global Cost Strategy Group, TripAdvisor, Fidelity, JP Morgan Chase, E-Trade, and several SaaS startups. He has spoken internationally, giving talks at O'Reilly Strata, Enterprise Data World, the International Institute for Analytics Symposium, Predictive Analytics World, and Boston College. He's also the host of the Experiencing Data podcast, where he reveals strategies and activities that products, data science, and analytics leaders are using to deliver valuable experiences around data. In addition to consulting, Brian is also a professional percussionist and he has performed at the Carnegie Hall and the Kennedy Center. What triggered me to invite Brian to my podcast was one of his quotes about the fact that 85% of AI, analytics and big data projects fail. And that's why we explore why this is the case and what needs to be done differently in order to be successful, creating software products that people find worth making a remark about. By listening to this podcast, you will learn three things. Firstly, that the first step in succeeding in data projects is to stop forgetting about the value of fun and engaging with people. Secondly, why it is key to define the owner of value creation in your team, i.e. someone that owns the problem and the accountability for analytics and data science solutions to actually provide value. And thirdly, that we have lost the humanity aspect in solution design. And the way to fix that 
and get some real wins is to spend time developing our soft skills. So Brian, thank you very much for making the time today to be a guest on my podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me here. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, this started all in a very funny way. I mean, connecting it to each other on LinkedIn and then looking at each other's profile and sort of getting this aha moment. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I mean, typically when I'm doing these podcasts, I'm interviewing founders, CEOs of business-to-business software companies, the majority of them. Sometimes I interview analysts, publishers of books. And what triggered me in your company and what you do for a business is something that is very related to this, namely that you actually help organizations make the transition to design products that are data-driven. And that's what a lot of people on the podcast do, but I also realize that a lot of my audience hasn't made a transition yet. So that's why I invited you. Cool. So talking a little bit about your company, Designing for Analytics, what is the big idea behind this? What is the problem that you saw that made you think, let's start this? Yeah, it's pretty easy. Well, the short of it is that from my own experience consulting, and then when I started to look and see, hey, do other people have this problem? I started to see really bad survey results over you know, 10 plus years. And so what I'm specifically talking about here is the success rate for delivering data projects. So you know, 10 years ago, the language was BI, business intelligence, and then it was analytics, and then it was data science and AI. And you basically can swap out whatever the big data. Oh, I forgot about big data. That was a phase two, if you remember that one. The theme here, though, is that, you know, the success rate on launching successful data initiatives, you know, hovered around 10 to 25 percent. So that means, you know, this failure rates up in the 75 percent plus. And so I had kind of been seeing this with the technical products I was working on. So then I was like, well, what did the survey say about why these things are failing And, you know, just recently I was looking at a Kaggle survey, Kaggle's a data science company, and they were talking about, you know, challenges such as lack of clear problem definition from the business. The business doesn't use the solutions that we build. And it started to sound like very much things that designers and people in the user experience space focus on all the time, which is trying to connect the people part to the technology part. And my general feeling was there was a, there's a lack of what I think is a focus on the human aspect of analytics and data science projects and products right now. We're trying to use the data science and analytics hammer, and we're looking for stuff to hit, but no one's really aware of where do we need holes? Who needs a hole and where do they need the hole? Instead, it's just hit nails wherever we can hit that and hope that someone maybe needs a hole here and it's completely backwards right so that's what i want to help out with is basically ensuring that if you're working on a data product where the product is data or if you're trying to use data to improve an existing product which may not be a digital product that you're focused on the human need and what the engagement of the customer right so figuring out what is this person's decision support that they need And then is our data initiative actually going to provide actionable decision support? Because that's really what the business and customers usually want, right? No one really wants to log in and look at charts and analytics unless you're an analyst, right? Usually what you want is, should I go left or go right? And what is the likelihood I'm right if I go right versus left? You're looking for a decision support and you need to understand the people in order to do that. 
You can't just look at the data part and say, oh, you know, the data is this clean. We need to buy this data. The training model needs, you know, X, Y, and Z. None of that is going to illuminate the problem space, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how I got on this whole. Yeah. <laughs> and we're talking about the whole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I see a lot of that as well. Very often is technology looking for a problem rather than the other way around. Well, so that's good that you started the business. Have you seen the difference between getting it wrong and getting it right? So, yeah, I would say one way I think you know when you're getting it right is when the applications and products and tools kind of disappear. So like when I'm talking to a client or a student, like in the training setting, it's this idea of the invisible interface. And that's yeah. a good signal that you're doing it right is when you're kind of in the state of flow where you're just doing work and you don't really notice the interface, what kind of chart it was, what kind of, what did the data say? You're just doing work. That's a good sign that the data is actually delivering the value that you want when we're not futzing around with charts and, you know, just manipulating the data, filtering it, downloading stuff, putting it into Excel, changing it, uploading to this other place, blah, blah, blah. We've all been there, right? We've all dealt with this sure. kind of stuff. That's tool time as it's sometimes referred to as tool time instead of goal time. We want to increase goal time and reduce tool time. And again, that's a place where good design can, can help with that. So Yeah. I mean, in the previous company I used to work for, I used to call this, the best UI is no UI. Yeah. <laughs> Does that resonate? Yeah, exactly. That's kind of the theme. I mean, I think there's some differences there. I think there's room for fun. Sometimes we forget about the value of fun and different ways of engaging with people. For me, kind of a level one goal for non-designers when I'm working with technical people is like you just said, let's see what we can do here to almost get rid of the interface and think about what could we take out of this? How can we reduce it and really focus on task completion instead of the interface? So I'm with you kind of on a first I mean, level goal. You're pointing out an interesting area there is task completion. Initially, you mentioned also decision support because sometimes it's about making decisions. Sometimes it's just making certain tasks just magically happen. Right. What I also believe is an area that a lot of organizations still need to kind of think more about, put more effort behind, is what I call the whole augmentation space. Because, I mean, making tasks disappear simply because data, well, has the answer and can do the action. That's what I would call about automating people out of a job, taking them out of the robot role, where if you start to use data and, and decision support and insights to augment people and allow them to do things they've never been able to do before. That's where I've, I believe real value comes in. Do you see that as well? Do you see different categories? I do. I would agree with that. I think I just step back here for a second. The main point of like, at least with my mission is understand, like if you're talking about building a solution for a particular class of employee at a company, like maybe it's not an end customer, maybe it's an internally facing solution. It's really more about understanding what their job is, what their goals are, their motivations. There's all this kind of squishy qualitative stuff that most data people, you know, someone with a PhD in physics, they're not really comfortable with a lot of this in my experience. They don't really want to get into all this kind of squishy stuff, but you have to start to learn about empathy and understand this person's perspective on it so that you can properly position the solution because you might nail the technology part, yeah. but the putting it into production part can fail miserably if you have no idea what the incentives are and all these other things that I'm sure you're familiar with and, and your listeners are familiar with as well. 
So it's not always about necessarily working someone out of a job. It may be like if you're a salesperson, for example, it's like you spend, you know, 18 hours a week futzing around in the CRM looking for someone to call, but just spend two hours a week on the phone. And the head of sales is like, I want my people on the phone. So what could we do to reduce the amount of time you spend searching for someone to call by giving you a qualified list of leads to call instead of spending the time building all your queries, running CSVs, dumping it into your calling program, blah, 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 right? We're not trying to replace a salesperson. We're trying to optimize his time for something that's a higher value for him or her. Yeah, it's shifting the role profile. Let them actually do what they are hired to do in the first place. I actually had a, a podcast interview on that Thursday last week. So that's an interesting one as well. So mm-hmm. I'll make sure that these two go kind of side by side here. Based on your experiences, what are the top three biggest mistakes that you see? Or maybe turn it around. How do you start with this? How do you start right? So, well, in terms of the mistakes, you know, by the time someone comes to me, often what's usually happened is there's been a large investment already in trying to build something. And typically what they're seeing is little to no customer engagement. Or if it's a commercial product, it might be that the sales team or the product person is saying it's too complicated to understand the value of it. And we think we have this amazing IP and it's, it's like we've got the best stuff on the planet, but our customers see our demo and they're like glazed, their eyes glaze over at it. These are typically kind of the symptoms for like why someone yeah. comes to me. And that's a lagging indicator, right, of a problem. You know, the actual issue, I think a lot of the time is they went with a technology first approach, either a data first approach, or they had some idea for some tech. And it was probably grounded in some basic customer need, but they focused a lot of time building out a giant data infrastructure and all the technical stuff that you're going to need in the pipelines. And you do need all this stuff, right? I'm not saying you don't need all of this at some point. But they didn't take an approach of like building something small, validating it with a small group of people and actually iterating over that. What most companies are still doing is they're just doing giant incremental design and build out of stuff. It's build a little bit and then build a little bit more. It's not build a little bit, get feedback on it, tweak it until it's right and then move on to something else or add something else. It's just add, 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 add. Rarely do they revisit. Why? Because they've already made these giant infrastructure decisions prior to knowing what the solution needed to do in the first place, right? Now you're hamstrung by this upstream technology decision and it kind of flows down from that. So, you know, that's probably one of two of the biggest, you know, reasons that I see people coming to me and what the problem space looks like. Yeah. So, I mean, again, the logical question from there is then how do you fix that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, it depends on the size of the company and the phase they're in. And, you know, are we talking about a a technology company with a live product that can be changed, you know, on the dime? Or are we looking at an internal analytics solution? So in my space, I've kind of like carved out two worlds that I work with. You have your technology companies where the the data is the product, that there's some kind of platform or service or, you know, a tech product, or you have a traditional company with an internal data science or analytics group, right? So they're building internal applications or, you know, they may be delivered through Tableau or some type of, you know, visualization interface, something like that. So it kind of depends, right? Because on the internal side, you may be dealing more with fiefdoms and, a lack of teams working together or a classic one would be 
no one's ever done something as simple as a journey map, right? To understand here's how this whole thing actually flows, right? We want to provide decision support for this person doing this job. And they need to then send something to procurement who then needs to fill out a form in this tool and then send it for some approval to this other person. And at that point, they're going to want justification, which is back in the analytics thing. We have the data to justify the purchase of the widget or whatever, right? And you start mapping out this giant flow and you can start to see here is why no one is using this analytics solution. Someone is using it at the very beginning, but it completely falls apart and doesn't actually deliver the value, which was help us make better purchasing decisions for, I don't know, some department, right? No one's ever looked at it at that higher elevation to see how this technology is not providing value, the outcome that we wanted, because the analytics people built what was asked of them. Someone came to them, a business manager, a frontline manager came to them and said, I need a spreadsheet with these columns in it. And I also want to have, be able to do a pivot on it. And I want to see a chart of this over time. And they're like, yes, sir, or ma'am, I will get right on that. And they diligently go out and build that for them. And there was no problem discovery there. They made an assumption that that person knows what they need to do their job and that that person knows how they fit into the giant, the big picture, right? And they don't always uh... know that. (laughs) <laughs> so you fail well, I mean, first than what they asked for. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's the typical mistake that customers come to you with specs. Exactly. And their business is doing something completely different. They should leave the specs to the people that have been learning for this. And what they should talk about is what is the outcome this should, this should right. give. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting one. And it's decades old and we still make the mistake. Sure. Well, I think it's natural. I mean... We all probably do that to a point when we're outside of our domain, but this kind of focus on outcomes and not outputs is something that I spend a lot of time on. In my training seminar, we're going to talk a lot about this, which is really anchoring our project success around the outcomes that we want. And that requires someone, a leader or our team to go and define the outcomes, which often are not known or they're not literally written down. And I'm talking about three to five bullet sentences, phrases, Mm -hmm. right? Not giant requirements documents, but just something that any team member can get their head around. Like, why did we do this project? Oh, they're trying to fix that. Yeah, that makes sense. Just getting to that point, I think is a huge win because every month when you're checking in or you're doing your sprint retros or whatever you're processes, you can revisit that and say, are we still on track for this? Do we need to change the goals potentially? And this is also something that's a little bit different, I think, with the design process is that sometimes we need to do design work to go figure out what we actually need to make. So you go do stuff in order to figure out what you need. You can't premeditate all of it. And you might need to go revisit the goals and the problem space as you build. It's not a linear process and it's a little bit creative and back to that squishy thing we talked about, you know, so. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, you've been in this space for, well, you've been 20 years in the software space. You've worked for multiple SaaS companies, SaaS startups, mm-hmm. three or four years now in this business. Do you see a difference in terms of how products are created, let's say, conceptually, well, 10 years ago versus today? Does, for example, I mean, a lot in the past, I mean, I came from the enterprise research planning world, very process-driven, transaction-driven. Mm-hmm. These days, it much more becomes a data-driven approach where yeah, it, everything starts from the data and the rest follows. Does it have any implications in terms of how you build products? So I think it depends on whether or not you're talking about the startup space. 
because the atmosphere and the climate is obviously different. So I've helped start, you know, several startups here or been involved in a consulting capacity with several startups here in Boston. And they do not work like the large enterprise companies that I've worked with whatsoever. It's the wild, wild west still. And I'm saying that in a good way, that there's a lot of room for experimentation. There's not a lot of time spent on analyzing decisions and pre-thinking stuff. It's much more ship, learn, revise, ship, learn, revise fast. They're much more willing to take risks with things. They're not worried about, you know, you probably know all of this. I'm, I'm guessing you're, you, you've had plenty of episodes about this, but the culture is very, is very different. In terms of the process, though, I would say one of the great things is that we don't need to spend as much time tooling up basic infrastructure kind of stuff, right? You can mm-hmm. get your basic infrastructure running in the cloud and True. you don't build True. a login and accounts portal anymore, right? You just, you have libraries for all of this. And so the time to validate your product is much shorter. You can get something out much more quickly, yeah. which amazes me how big companies still are super slow with this, given the fact that technology has moved so fast to get rid of some of the time. Remember, we, you know, 20 years ago, you had everything was custom, right? You had to build all this stuff out every time exactly. a new application. You spend all this time building something stupid like roles and permissions. It's like, now it's a plugin. You know? yeah. <laughs> I'm simplifying no, I mean, here, I can even go further than that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, writing the printer drivers. So right. um, <laughs> <laughs> you want to print? Oh, that's six months, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The printer driver for an Epson printer. Yeah, <laughs> and that's going a long way back. So, yeah. I mean, things have luckily progressed and I agree completely with you. The cloud is now the way how fast things can set things up, get things up and running, test things out and evolve from there is mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. So, what do you see as, as a difference, for example, in mind shift between companies that, that start data-driven and companies that have to transition to a world where data becomes more important to them? So, maybe this makes me sound different. So I think part of the problem is the sense of trying to be data driven. And so because my business is focused around human centered design for data science and analytics, what I want people to do is make sure that there's an equal amount of attention on the human aspect as there is on the data aspect. And I'm not talking about ethics. That's a whole nother subset to me of human centered design. I'm talking about You can spend all the time being data-driven in your work, but if it doesn't create decision support, you didn't actually do anything data-driven. You just spent time on data technology, but you didn't create an outcome that was desirable. You have to do both of these things together. Let me make a small interruption here. Brian just highlighted something critical. You have to ensure you create an outcome that is desirable. And remarkable software businesses master this. It's a core trait that enables them to create new value possibilities, to solve valuable problems, not just interesting ones. They create something that transforms and not just improves how we work. And this trait and the other nine that define a remarkable software business is something that you can master as well. It starts with understanding where you stand by simply doing the test. And you can find that on valueinspiration.com slash remarkableindex. Back to the interview. So it's not enough to just say, I need to train, we need data literacy for the whatever, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's great. But if the the person that needs the literacy can't understand how to use the data that's presented to them, and it's not because the data is wrong, it's because it's presented to them at the wrong time or in the wrong format, or it's not when they need it, 
they have to log into a computer. This guy lives on the road. He's on his iPhone. Like he's not going to download your PDF that's been set up desktop format and it's 98 pages long. And this guy's a salesman on the road, right? It's stuff like that. It's not that the sales guy is not data literate. It's that your solution sucks. It doesn't help him know which door should I go knock on next. And I use that example just because we can all relate to the sales kind of perspective, right? So I think it's data and human driven is where we need to be. <laughs> yeah, well, I completely agree. Yeah. So talking about the human, human-centric design then, but first of all, can you define that? And what is the, maybe the misconception about this these days? Because I mean, the customer experience has been a big topic over the last decade almost. User experience, UIs, and everybody thinks that, yeah, I mean, we've been designing for humans all our life, but still so many things go wrong. Sure. So, well, a couple things. So my process with human-centered design borrows from a number of different perspectives. I steal from consulting. I steal from design thinking. I steal from my own experience. And you put together a soup that makes sense for me and something that I can communicate to my clients as a tool set. One of the things I talk about a lot is simply encouraging the behaviors of design and design thinking. So getting out of the feeling that you need to be a designer in order to do design. I'm a big fan of that. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of designers think that there's something, you know it if you have it. And as a designer, you know when someone's a designer and when they're not. It's like, great. There's probably something to that. I don't care. I think it gets in the way most of the time when we're talking about making progress. And so I have this mission that I feel that most people I can train on how to become design thinkers and how to use this toolkit in their daily work and especially technical people. For some reason, I've just worked on a ton of technical products and data products and I've worked really well with engineering type people and somehow I've been able to connect with that group even though my background's in music and I have an arts background. I feel like there are people can use this tool set to their advantage. So there's several different phases with the design thing, but the data visualization, which is usually what people, when you say analytics and design, I think data viz and charts starts to come into their mind. And that's not where the process starts. That's kind of the end result. That's the last mile of the design part is kind of the interfacing piece. The problem definition phase and doing research and using empathy to figure out what people actually need, that's not visual necessarily, right? That's a lot of talking to people. It's actually a lot more about listening to people and learning how to ask really good probing questions, why questions and Socratic questioning. So learning how to conduct a user interview to get to the space where someone is opening up to you instead of the Word document with all the requirements and the 86 pages of fields they need in the spreadsheet, right? You're actually getting to something which is like, I need to reduce my team size. Because my boss said, if I don't reduce my team size, I'm going to get fired. And I don't want to reduce them. I actually want to like move them to this other department. But I need some data to back up to the decision. So that's really what's behind this. And it's like at no time did the Word document ever say, this person is right-sizing their department. It said, I need a spreadsheet with these numbers, <laughs> right? Sure. And so by doing that problem definition piece, we can start to better understand what type of solution would actually help this person go through this really difficult journey of having to lay off people from his job or maybe finding another place for them 
and somehow you're part of that bigger journey with this person's life and you're creating an impact and an outcome that's actually meaningful and not just sending over a spreadsheet with a bunch of numbers in it and some charts. Right? <laughs> so yeah. to me, that's kind of where the, the, the beginning of this design thing happens, right? So you have this empathy part where we're out there talking to customers and we're in the problem discovery phase, right? We're not with no solutions hat on. We all have problem finding hats on, which is another trait of a good designer is the problem finding aspect. Then we move into kind of doing some analysis on this so that we can actually come up with a problem definition, which everybody can get around. We move through the kind of more traditional stuff, right? You go into your prototyping phases here, you go through your validation of the prototypes there and your revision phase. And so this is kind of how you start to birth a new product or solution. And there's obviously details at all these different stages, but you know, at a high level, those are kind of the major you know, major chapters. Yeah. Interesting. And I agree with a good part of what you've just been saying. I think I told you about, I'm writing a book at the moment and it's called The Remarkable Effect. It's about the 10 traits of a remarkable software business. Since you've been in this business as well, and since you're actually helping them to create products that actually succeed, what do you believe is a key trait or maybe more traits that defines a company that is going to create remarkable, a remarkable impact? So I would say probably the number one thing is how much time the makers, we can call them designers, let's just say makers, right? So I would say product people, engineering, analytics, data science, someone that has a responsibility towards the whatever's going to show up in the solution between the makers and actual customers, how much time have they spent together in the both the research phase and the product creation and validation phase together. And I'm talking about one-on-one yeah. -on -one time, two-on-one -on -one time, observation, doing a ride-along yeah. study. That is probably correlated. I don't have any data to back this up right now, but it's so sorely lacking in most places. It's very rare that I find out like, well, how many people did you talk to? And like, have you spent any time with them? And I just retweeted this, some guy in Scotland that did this in the public space. The best literally the best example of someone it's like and he just wrote this article here's what we did in order to figure out for our you know i forget what it was gov local government services but we set up these interviews and we had everyone come together and then after that we went through this phase i was just like this is like someone living the dream for me like the playbook and i retweeted it and he's like thank you we're gonna hang this on the wall and i'm like this is so good so i'm trying to get him on my show to talk about that because the point here is he's a data scientist you can do this too. We all can do it. We don't need permission yeah. from our parents. You know, well, everyone can do this, but it doesn't happen because I think we just assume on the surface that someone has said what they need. It's like, dear doctor, my arm hurts. Please give me a cast. Okay, here's your cast. Have a nice day. Are you kidding? Yeah, There's no freaking way they're going to give you a cast without diagnosing that problem, right? To say, <laughs> do you need a cast? No, go home, rest, and stop playing tennis for two weeks. And then call me if you have a problem. They did a problem, there was a discovery there to figure out what's actually wrong, what's actually needed. You don't just give them what they asked for because words don't necessarily communicate that unless the proper questions have been set up to elicit the actual situation that's going on, the problem space. And again, you can have the fiefdoms and all these other things can start to come into play at the larger companies. Sometimes it's really hard to just get the teams together, right? Because they're physically yep. separated. Or there's no like, well, you know what? That's not in my budget, so I don't really have time. But you guys just build something and let us know when it's done. And it's like, well, whose job is it to make sure that this new analytics solution 
is going to work. And if you're an executive out there listening to this right now, I get laughs when I ask this question on my show. And when I talk to CAOs and CDOs particularly, it's usually kind of a, a laugh when I said, who owns the value creation and responsibility, the accountability for analytics and data science solutions to produce value? And they can't tell me. And it's like, well, guess what? Until it's someone's problem, it's probably not going to get much better. You're basically going to be living in laboratory mode and the money will keep flowing for a while. And I'm hearing that the gravy train of money, just tons of money being thrown at data science and analytics departments, accountability is coming. It's around the corner and people are going to start, the executives and boards are going to start asking, what am I getting for these really expensive PhDs and this data science stuff? What are we getting for this? I don't understand what they do. I know we need them and I know AI is important, but what are we getting? And yeah, the joke, if for a lot of places, I'm surprised they can't answer this question about who owns the value creation. So you got to figure that out too, right? Because otherwise it's like lab mode, right? Go try some stuff. Yeah. And, and there's totally a place for that, right? I'm not saying you may need to learn through experimentation, but maybe you don't need to do a 12 month project to do an experiment to see whether or not you can deploy a machine learning model. Like simply, can we build the pipeline? Can we build all the technology? Can we throw a model together and can it do something? Great, but don't try to like change the entire sales organization as your first project, right? That you're doomed for failure. Start with some tiny little thing in the corner where you won't hurt too much if you wanna run it in lab mode and talk about that, that the goal and the desired outcomes of this project is to create a laboratory experiment, to experiment with the technology and simply see if we can deploy something within three months to test our own abilities or whatever and make it clear that that's actually the goal is the, the process, right? That's different than setting an expectation that you're going to fulfill some need that the whatever department accounting needs or whoever needs it, right? Or the customer, it's still kind of this chuckle and it scares me. that we can't ground ourselves around what are the desired outcomes for this project or solution or product. You got to start there. Yeah. And that's two ways for the organization itself, but more importantly for the people that actually need to benefit from this, which are called customers. Yep. (laughs) But they're also humans too. And this is something, you know, I talk about with my mailing list and my subscribers and all that too, is that the business is a bunch of humans. It's like government, right? It's not them. The government is us in, in most, well, democratic countries, hopefully. It's us and we're people. And the business yeah. is also people. And this is why I like the term human-centered design because they're humans and we still need to think about both the business side and the customer side because they're not always the same collection of people, but they both matter. And this gets into like where I think a lot of designers and there, I think there's gaps in this space. The designers are so often focused on UX, the user yep. experience, without thinking yep. about the viability of the business piece, right? Like we have to pay for all this to happen, right? We need income and revenue coming in so we can further our mission. So good design to me looks at both the business side and the user experience piece. You can't just look at one of those and be in business to further your mission, right? <laughs> Correct. Well, that brings me to almost my final question then. Like based on the wisdom that you've gathered over the last couple of years, what would you advise someone that owns this, whether that's the founder or the CPO or you know, whoever in the organization owns the product and the product value, what would you advise them to do differently from tomorrow onwards? 
I think the biggest thing is if you're going to play in the data space. So if you have this itch where, you know, we should be using analytics here, or I feel like there's an opportunity to use machine learning or AI or whatever it may be, is to take out some of the technology jargon words and use the word decision support. And again, this is for people working on data products and decision support type applications, because that's, that's my area of focus. But use the word decision support and anchor yourself around that. And so you're not married to trying to use machine learning because it's the hip thing. True. Focus on the decision support aspect and let the data science and the technical people help you decide whether or not a regular regression or, you know, do you need a machine learning model? Do you need a neural net to do that? That's what you're paying them for is to figure out the True. right hammer to take out of the, the toolkit, right? And to hit the yeah. nail. But what they need from you is that problem definition piece, which means you need to know what the decision support needs to be. And if you start there, needs to be taken. Exactly, exactly. So yeah. it's more problem and finding and less solution guessing. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. Well, this was helpful. So, I mean, going forward, is there anything you can ask the audience? How can the audience help you to accomplish what you set out to do in this world? <laughs> How can they help me personally or how can they help my well, mission? You're, be, you're, you're on a mission to get this right. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you've stumped me. I haven't had this kind of question before. How could they help me? I think not enough conversations are happening between people with very advanced technical degrees. I don't want to turn this into a long conversation, but I think we've lost something of the humanities aspect here with the kind of the relentless focus on technical skill development, at least here in the, the U.S., you know, I have another career as a professional musician and I come from the performing arts space and this human connection piece still, as I mature in my business, I start to realize how important the soft skill aspect is to business and product creation. It's much harder to do this stuff when you're working, you have people in a dungeon that never go and talk to someone else and they're like, yeah. leave me alone. I just want to work on getting this predictive model, whatever efficient, you know, 98% accurate instead of 92% accurate, right? Yeah. There's a time and place for that, but having better conversations between the people to understand the problems and pains, like if that's happening, I'm pretty happy out there. I can help people do this. I can help bring your technical team kind of around and build some of these soft skills out and work on the design with them. But I think if they're doing that on their own and spending some time developing the soft skill piece, I think they're going to see some real wins. And I think it means there's less garbage out there. As one great client called it, less metrics toilets. Exactly. <laughs> These well, this, analytics uh, tools no one can use, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's a very good question. Well, challenge to race. And I think everybody can do with it what they believe is good for them at this point. But I completely agree with you. So where mm -hmm. can people go to find out more about your business and say hi to you? Sure. Yeah. I'm on designingforanalytics.com. My email is just brian, B-R-I-A-N, at designingforanalytics.com. And I have a podcast there and a free mailing list. And there's also a self-assessment guide. So if you're, if you're working on a data product or analytics solution and you want to be able to assess the quality of this, kind of from the lens of a product designer, there's a free guide on there with like a series of emails to kind of go along with the guide and help you work through an assessment of your own tool cool. uh, or solution. So yeah. And I'm also on Twitter. My handle is Rhythm Spice, R-H-Y-T-H-M Spice and LinkedIn and all those good places. So. Okay. Well, I mean, people will find you for sure. sure. This was very entertaining, Brian. And thank you for that. <laughs> good. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And I hope my audience enjoyed it as much as I did. So talking about that, for those that are listening, 
Please share your thoughts about this episode. If you have a question, just post it or send me an email. And if you like it and this podcast inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. But other than that, thanks for tuning into this podcast today. I had the honor to speak to Brian O'Neill, founder of Designing for Analytics. The goal of this podcast is to share compelling ideas and showcases to inspire what can be when technology and people blend in the right way. It's my strong belief that too much focus is put on automating people out of a process, in other words, cutting costs, rather than scenarios where the unique strength of people are augmented with technology to change the established rules and to deliver a value that was unimaginable before. So, with this podcast, I want to make a contribution to change this, to create a broader awareness of what can be, to accelerate the adoption by bringing together you, a tribe of like-minded people and organizations, and lastly, to accelerate the initiatives and solutions that could be created because one idea inspires the other. So if you know about stories that are worth sharing, please send me a message. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas, and that starts with you. If you want to have more information, read my blogs, or obtain information on working with me, just visit me on my website, valueinspiration.com. Thank you for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast or provide me with your feedback. I'll see you shortly in a new episode. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.